that, I'd like to thank everybody for coming and get uh, the talk underway. It's a great pleasure to welcome uh, John Bowen, who is the uh, Dunbar Van Cleve Professor in Arts and Sciences at Washington University St. Louis. Uh, he studies the problems of pluralism, law, and religion, and in particular, contemporary efforts to rethink Islamic norms in law in Asia, Europe, and North America. Uh, John is the author of Islam, Law, and Equality in Indonesia, an Anthropology of Public Reasoning that Cambridge published in 2003, and the author of Why the French Don't Like Headscarves, which Princeton published in 2007. In this latter book, uh, John argues that the contest was never about headscarves or even only about the niceties of law and laicite, uh, the French norm of secular, uh, well, the norms of secular, secularism in public spaces, but that it was about Muslim immigrants proclaiming Islam as their identity and being seen by other French citizens as a potentially a threat to liberal values, women's rights, and even to the state if their true loyalty was to God. Uh, as understood by people in their ancestral homelands. Part of the argument was that while laissez-faire was always a contested concept, in both terms of its meaning and its behavioral obligation, there was much less debate about the French state's assertion of its supremacy over alternative sources of power. You know, after all, the state had spent a long time domesticating the Catholic Church, and it wasn't keen for a new challenge uh, with Islam. The kind of non-national communitarianism that might be associated with multiculturalism, John argued, threatened the direct connection the French state sought with its citizens. And he concluded that study by suggesting that the Republic had been challenged by demands that France recognize the capacity of citizens to be publicly different and yet equally French. Today he's here to talk about his forthcoming book that Princeton is publishing entitled, Can Islam Be French? Pluralism and Pragmatism in a Secular State which I presume will give us a glimpse of how France might deal with the challenge that he saw at the close of his last <coughs> study. It's with real pleasure that I introduce John Bowen and welcome you to Mershon. Please join me in welcome. Thanks, Rick. Thanks. Now, Melanie, am I on? Yes. And you'll get the light? Yes. Great. And you get an A for the book report. <laughs> it's well done. This is my title, and, and, and of course, uh, it rests on a premise that's entirely indefensible, uh, that because Islam can't be French any more than it can be Syrian or American, certainly if you talk with Muslims about what Islam is, there's a universal tradition, valid for all times and places, with, of course, interpretations to fit particular uh, parts of the world and, and particular times. But what I really mean in asking this question is, can, can Islam become eventually a, a part of the French landscape? Maybe it'll take... Uh, some time for it to be as uh, taken for granted as our church steeples or baguettes, but can it be uh, something that people recognize as uh, a natural and normal part of France, and at the same time retain its legitimacy in the eyes of Muslims, scholars, and others, both at home and abroad? So that's the question the book sets out, and I'll focus in on uh, these two sets of pressures or dilemmas and give you some illustrations of the ideas. It is part of a larger project, uh, <coughs> pursuing two different sets of questions. And one has to do with the particular ways in, French, in which French people, non-Muslim French people, have thought about and worried about Islam in France. And that was uh, the, what lay behind this book, which 
focused on the controversy over the headscarves, but actually also dealt with a number of other worries that French people have about integration of France in a, in a, in a broader sense, uh, changes in the urban landscape, uh, uh, racism, and, and other concerns. And of course, this French attitudinal context continues to be the, the, the context for the current study. There is a deep ambivalence in France about Islam and Muslims. Uh, Rick is now looking into this uh, in, uh, in his own work, I know. On the one hand, French people, far more than other Europeans, and even far more than people in Muslim-majority countries, <clears throat> say that Islam can be compatible with modern society. These are some of the, these are some of the figures. Uh, so it looks like if you ask them about Islam, whatever they think that means, that's a question we don't know much about, uh, they say, yeah, Islam can be part of our modern society. On the other hand, I, I, when I stepped in a couple of years ago to a bookstore, the Virgin, Virgin Bookstore in Saint-Denis, it was fasting month, and I was coming out of a, uh, some time spent in an Islamic school, <laughs> um, I saw, first of all, <clears throat> in the front of the store, Stores magazine. It had a picture of a naked woman on the cover with pleasure as the theme for the issue. And on the first table, when you walk into the store, you encounter books on Islam, the Quran, how to pray, etc. And we, we were in the month of Ramadan then. But the table with the new small format books that's just near the cash register that you're supposed to pick up gave me a clue as to what French people are seeing when, uh, when they go to a bookstore uh, in terms of representations of Muslims, not Islam. 13 titles total, 10 of which approached Islam and Muslims from a very different point of view than the, that poll result would indicate. I'll give you some of the titles. Dishonored and Mutilated. Each concerns violence by Muslim men against Muslim women. Sultana describes the horrible life of a Saudi princess. The Sold Ones, Les Vendus, and uh, the Fatiha, which refers to the first verse or the prologue, depending on what you think of the Quran. Each treat, each treat forced marriages. Muslim but free is Irshad Manji's story. Some of you have read this. Disfigured is Rania Albaz's. Each book's about Muslim misogyny. Gang rape hell speaks for itself. Takes place in Paris. Suad burned alive. And Latia, her face stolen, complete the picture. And I don't count number 11, which is a translation of reading Lolita in Tehran, which suggests that without Nabokov, the Persians might have found themselves bereft of literature. <clears throat> Things aren't that different here from where Irshad Manji comes, Canada, North America, and where another denouncer of Islam from within, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Submission, The Caged Virgin, settled, and where books on Islam's threat to Europe have taken off. They're asleep, we're next. We, over here, are warned in While Europe Slept and Eurabia. Well, we very seldom hear, uh, apart from these sorts of books, from Muslims who are not in the business of denouncing their own kind. Save the, the well-intentioned but not very effective pleas that Islam is a religion of peace, as if that would be a satisfying response to disfigured and submission and unceasing reports of terrorism training. Remember the Marx Brothers, who do you believe, me or your own eyes? Left largely to the side, either out of their own prudence or out of the public sphere's decision that their voices are less interesting, are the broad middle of Muslims who do not wish to renounce the possibility of just war. Yes, jihad. And do wish to remain true to the Sharia. And who do tune in to well-researched scholarly opinions. Yes, fatwas. 
all while living ordinary, non-terrorizing lives. They do at the same time that many of their Catholic fellow citizens also subscribe to doctrines of the just war, wish to enter heaven, and do listen to what the Pope has to say, as, as many of their Jewish and Baptist and Mormon neighbors look to their own authorities and scriptures. Well, these are the people I've been working with in France, trying to figure out how to configure a set of teachings and norms and institutions that will anchor Islam in France now and for the next generation. <clears throat> and that's the title, uh, the question that I intend in the, in the title of the talk. Can Islam become a workable reality for Muslims who wish to live fulfilling social and religious lives in France? And I look at questions, that both their efforts to create Islamic institutions and the kinds of questions that they pose and debate. <clears throat> What should a secondary school look like that's Islamic? Should a marriage be at a mosque or a city hall or both? May I borrow money at interest from a bank to buy my home? These are the subjects for continued debate. <clears throat> the, the figures that I will look at here in the rest of the talk find themselves caught uh, in two dilemmas. The first one results from the fact that they find themselves in a field of Islamic opinions and authorities, which is worldwide, and where most of uh, the, the most authoritative figures are not in Europe at all. They're in Syria, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, or they might be Sufi masters in Africa or in Turkey. And those people issues, issue opinions um, and have positions which carry a lot of weight in Europe. And so European scholars and public actors have to respond to the, that global jurisprudence about what Islam is and should be. And either they can simply follow those global authorities um, and risk not adapting sufficiently to French needs and demands, or they can try to adapt Islam to a, a great extent to local demands and local ideas and risk being accused of carrying out illegitimate innovation, a bid'ah, straying from the path <coughs> set out by God and the prophet. But there's a second uh, dilemma also. Uh, which is in their role not as members of the, the, worldwide, uh, the worldwide community of Islamic scholars, but rather with respect to their role as French public actors. These are scholars and teachers and heads of schools and institutes. And they have to, they find themselves caught between another dilemma. On the one hand, they can, uh, they can follow the French rules of the game, set up schools, set up associations that are Islamic, but risk being branded as communalists as, as wanting to just hang out with other Muslims and is not integrating sufficiently into France. Or they can urge what many in, French would, in France would prefer, that they make of Islam something that's more of a private religion, something that happens at home and isn't in your face. And then they risk uh, losing legitimacy with other Muslims, with their base and with Muslims er elsewhere in the world. Now, the state is also caught in its own <coughs> set of dilemmas because... As, as Rick pointed out, uh, something I said in my first book, the state in France has a tradition of managing religion. There is, after all, a Bureau of Religions in the Ministry of the Interior in France. The notion that France somehow is hands-off of religions because the law passed in 1905 is often called the law of separation of religions and state uh, is, it doesn't correspond to what the state actually does. Um, it's deeply involved in training imams, uh, building mosques out of the state or municipal authority, uh, regulating the performing of, uh, uh, of halal sacrifice, uh, regulating the, the large, the two eeds, the, the days of, of worship. Um, but on the other hand, it has to watch itself because there is a strong ideology in France of laicite or secularity, which says the state really shouldn't be doing these things. 
and uh, indeed efforts to help mosque building in a, in a number of French cities by giving land for a rental of one euro a year have met with lawsuits, usually from the far right, saying that that contravenes French laws about secularity. So the state itself is involved in this dilemma. I won't be saying more about that today. I'll be focusing on these Islamic authorities. So I want to start by saying who they are, who are Muslims in France, and who are the authorities. And then I want to look at three contexts to give you some sense of how uh, three different figures are trying to create a space for deliberation and debate about uh, Islamic norms in France. So who are the Muslims? Um, Let's look both at how they came to be there, uh, their changing sense of who they are, and who their authorities are. Uh, The largest body of Muslims in France and the oldest source of immigration to France is Algeria. Indeed, France has the deepest involvement with bringing Muslims uh, to uh, Europe of any European country, far deeper even than Britain, which would be the second. This goes back to the the conquest, colonization uh, of Algeria and the incorporation of it into France as part of France, not as a colony technically and legally, Uh, followed by labor recruitment organized by the state uh, together with with companies, private companies, and uh, continuing on to massive recruitment of workers after World War II. (coughs) The deep uh, involvement in the bitter conflict, bloody conflict in Algeria between 1954 and 1962, which has had consequences uh, for for Algerians and for French uh, people today. There were were five million, I think the figure was, French people at one time or or another involved in Algeria in the conflict. These different stages of immigration have also involved different senses of self-identification on the part of uh, uh, Algerians and Muslims more generally. In, in France, to begin with, the status of, of second-class French subjects, uh, even those uh, in Algeria, where Algeria was not a colony but part of France, did have a kind of citizenship, but it was not the full citizenship enjoyed by uh, Europeans living in Algeria or those living in the in the metropole. From the 1970s on, however, after uh, after the end of the war and after the end of labor migration, they became families settling in France, and so now the sense of who they were were people who were now coming to France and trying to construct normal lives with, uh, uh, with their families and their children. As those children came of age in the 1980s, they started to demand equality as French citizens born in France, like everybody else. And this is where the, the label beur, which is a, uh, a slang transformation of Arab, uh, uh, emerged. These were not people calling themselves Muslims first and foremost, but people who came from this particular background of immigration who now wanted equality. (laughs) And they wanted it through labor unions and through political processes, and they didn't get it. And the disappointment at this led to a search for a new identity. Uh, We're not going to be accepted as as French like everybody else. We can't go home, as we're constantly being told to do, because we were born here. So we're we're Muslims. And many started uh, demanding recognition publicly as Muslims, which included building mosques. Uh, There began to be a strong movement in several cities for large mosque projects. This is the one in Lyon, one of the more successful ones, for dressing in public as Muslims with headscarves uh, or or beards in the case of men, other garments. This, of course, was not met with equanimity by the majority of French people who said, let's stop stop putting our head in the sands. That's roughly what that means. Um, and in particularly about the danger posed by women running around in headscarves, often called in France today the veil, as if this is what we're talking about, whereas in fact what most women had on were headscarves. 
the last book I wrote, uh, and some, many of you know about this anyway, regarded the debates during uh, going from 1989 up through 2003 about whether scarves should be allowed, Islamic headscarves, in public schools. This was perceived, perceived as a match between the Republic and Islamic women, the vanguard for political Islam. Uh, notice the head covering on Mariam. Aha. <coughs> she has a little hair showing, though. You see, that means she's not, that doesn't really uh, carry so much significance. And the passage of a law banning all religious signs in public schools uh, in uh, the beginning of 2004. And, you know, this is the sort of imagery that's, uh, that led to a lot of people supporting such a ban. The women are being controlled by, by, by the men. Muslims today in, Fra in France are <coughs> uh, largely from North Africa and most of those from Algeria, which means that the memories about the war continue to, uh, for many people, shape how they feel about uh, this presence, uh, including the association of women in veils with the violence in Algeria during the Algerian war and continued violence in North Africa and elsewhere uh, after that, that time. <coughs> At the same time that there's been an effort to uh, recover the sacrifice by many uh, Africans, North Africans and West Africans in the two world wars. And may, many of you may have seen this film. What's it called in the US? Forgot, sorry. Anyone remember? Something glory. Glory. Glory, days. glory days, is that it? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I work mainly around Paris. Um, Here's, here's Paris, and here are the, here are the surrounding suburbs, uh, and there are many, many Muslims around this area. It's the largest concentration of Muslims in France. There are also a lot of Muslims in the cities and suburbs of Lille, of Lyon, of Marseille, and usually in Marseille, it's the center city, and on the eastern part of, of, of France, where you have a lot of Turks especially. <coughs> All right, that's for Muslims. Who are the authorities? Uh, there are a number of different kinds of authorities. Some of them are teachers in schools or in institutes. Uh, uh, all of those people were born elsewhere, and most of them had some degree of training in places like Tunis, at uh, Al-Zaytuna, or in Riyadh, or elsewhere. Uh, this is Hisham El-Arafa, a Tunisian, uh, with whom I've been working since 2001, who runs one of these institutes. I'll return to him a little bit. There are also Sufi leaders with uh, ties to the centers of their order in, uh, in North Africa or in West Africa or in Turkey. Here's a, a, a North African group, a Moroccan group, uh, celebrating the festival um, at, a, at a large hall north of Paris with music and chant, chanting. And then there are people who are imams who uh, preside over prayer in mosques at a number of different parts of, of France. This gives you, I'm going to give you a little bit of the range. The Paris Mosque. It's presided over by this fellow, Dalboubakar, who is the kind of uh, malevolently known as the house, the house imam for the French government. Uh, there's always been a favoring of the Paris Mosque. It's the oldest mosque established in the 20s by the French government. Um, and for a long time, he was head of the French Council of the Muslim Religion, uh, a group formed by uh, the then Minister of the Interior, now President, Nicolas Sarkozy. And here's the interior of this beautiful Paris Mosque. Most Parisians know this is a great place to have tea. Um, it, it is. <clears throat> this fellow, Dao Miskin, you'll, you'll hear about a little more later on. Here he is ready to go and, and conduct uh, Friday services at his mosque, which is in Clichy-sous-Bois. Anyone remember Where's Waldo? We can go, you know, find the mosque. Well, it's here. It's a couple of... Uh, of apartments thrown together, and 
This, is, this was the start of the riots in fall 2005 in Clichy-sous-Bois, and indeed Dao Miskin uh, spent a lot of time and effort trying to send people from the mosque out to calm things, calm things down. It was, it was quite good that not even the French press or the, the secret police, the Renseignement Généraux, uh, thought of this riot as being about Islam in any, in any way. Uh, here's a fellow, uh, the one uh, on uh, here, not that guy, uh, this guy, um, uh, Larbi Kashat, who runs the probably the largest, one would say, in terms of, of the number of people who come to, to worship mosque in Paris, currently under reconstruction. It's in the 19th arrondissement, the mosque at Dahua, often called the, mos- the mosque at the, 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 the Rue du Tanger, if any of you uh, know this. We'll come back to him as well. This is the, the project for the new mosque uh, he's building. Um, and then finally, there are lots of there are mosques that shift control. There's no steady imam. And uh, many of these are, are considered to be, one time or another, under the control of, of Salafis, uh, which is a way that the secret police, the Renseignement Généraux here, talk about people considered to be radical. Um, <clears throat> and this was their effort a few years ago to sort of come up with a cartography of Salafi mosques. All right, so we have teachers, we have imams, we have associations, uh, also uh, have constitute a source of authority, the largest one being the UAF, the Union of uh, Islamic Organizations of France. And they have an annual gathering, the Salon du Bourget, which everybody who's anybody goes to. You can really be a Muslim. Um, there's, uh, there's a bazaar. You, know, you buy books, uh, clothes, uh, boys meet girls, girls meet boys, that sort of thing. Um, it's a safe spot. Uh, I couldn't pass up this slide, right? I mean, how could you not show this slide? Um, and there's even a, there's even a, 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 um, a booth for a deaf Muslims who learn how to sign in Arabic, they can practice. It's a, it's a place for people who are starting new schools, like this fellow Ahmed Abidi, uh, to set out their wares and attract people. And of course, you drink uh, a Muslim up or Mecca Cola, uh, not the coffee or equivalents. There are also very famous people from elsewhere in the Muslim world who come and speak. Um, uh, the last year I went, which was the year before last, uh, the, these, all the proceedings were also available on the internet. It was the most frequently watched site. Uh, in France for those for those days. Uh, this is a fellow named, named uh, Bin Bia uh, who was speaking in Arabic with translation. These are in, in both languages. Finally, there are people who don't really fit an organization in any way, but they're new public intellectuals, as we have throughout uh, the Islamic world. Tariq Ramadan maybe being the best known, uh, a Swiss born, the Swiss-born grandson of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, who uh, tried to come here to teach at, uh, uh, no, uh, how do you say it in English? Uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Uh, uh, sorry, I had a problem. Um, American brain freeze, uh, who's, who's now somewhat associated with St. Anthony's College in Oxford. I don't know how much time he spends there. Then you have authorities at a distance. We're, we're not on the Internet here, right, Melanie? We are. Well, let me just try one of these. We have people like Yusuf Kardawi. Um, I'll try, and if it doesn't work, uh, okay, wait a minute. Um, oh, I, I, maybe it will take too much time because I have to go out of this mode into another mode to get on. I won't do it. Um, but uh, Yusuf Kadawi, uh, probably you know, the major figure in the Islamic world, I think, in terms of it being a source through various kinds of websites uh, of, of uh, non-binding legal opinions. That, uh, I, often my students think fatwa means a death sentence for a writer. Uh, but it means a non-binding legal opinion, uh, either through his own uh, set, his own site. We can go back later and look at these if you want to, or Islam Online, which is uh, the, the most important uh, English language website 
um, which often features Kaldawi or people from the European Council of Fatwa and Research that he heads, or people related to ISNA in the U.S. These are all. This is all sort of one large network with Kaldawi as the uh, as the head. Uh, here he is um, uh, with the European uh, uh, group. This is the European Council of Fatwa and, and Research with uh, the UAF, the French one. They were hosting it, uh, and uh, there are a number of the French. The, Fra- the French. Here's one of the French scholars. French dominate uh, the, um, uh, the European Council. None of these people were born in Europe, but they're supposed to all reside in Europe. Most of them, but not all of them do. Then you have people like uh, Mohammed Nasser Adin al-Albani, uh, who's the sort of star of the suburbs. He, uh, if you went to this site, you'd see a 10-page long um, response to the question, do women have to wear socks when they're praying in the mosque? Um, goes on and on and on, concludes that they should. And then you have uh, Sayyid Mohammed Saeed Ramadan al-Buti. Uh, we'll see him in a minute, who spends a lot of time refuting al-Albani, saying, you know, you're just an un- you're, you're, you're a desert idiot. You know, you have to actually look in the sources of jurisprudence. So there's a lot out there on the Internet, and, you know, you can go and you can choose your scholar. You all know this. Those of you who teach know the problem, right? Uh, how do you know who set, that, uh, who set up that, that site? But it's a very important source for news, and we can talk about this more later. Okay, so now I'm going to start looking at some of these figures, and I want to focus on the, um, the two dilemmas, but especially the one that's, that they face with respect to this world of Islamic authorities. They've got to take cognizance of the fact that the French people who are going to come and pray or learn or talk with them are, are looking at these websites, and they're very aware of what Albani says. He's extremely popular because he has, he has straightforward answers to questions. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Kardawi's a little complex, but a lot of people like him. So they can't ignore that, but at the same time, they've got to be responding to French issues. Uh, so how do you do that? All right, uh, Hisham al-Arafah uh, is the, the founder and teacher of the, the most successful Institute for Learning About Islam. This is not a school that replaces a day school. It's something people go to on the weekends or at night. Largely, these are young people of Muslim heritage who didn't learn very much Islam. They grew up in France, whether they were born in France or elsewhere. It's in Saint-Denis up here, just north of Paris. Uh, and it's a very, uh, a very, a very plugged-in place. You know, you hear about the French poor outer cities, the banlieues. Um, most of these, or many of these, are places that are very lively, very multicultural. Saint-Denis has the Basilica, you know, Saint-Denis, after all, right? Um, And it's got a very lively commercial district, a very mixed area. And here's Hisham again, uh, studied at Zaytuna and then studied in Riyadh, and now runs this this center. What he tries to do is um, teach the complexity of the methodology of Islamic sciences to students, uh, to as a bulwark, as he puts it, against Salafi ideas, against people like al-Albani who say there's a right and there's a wrong. You just listen to me and you'll know the right way and the wrong way to do things. And people who don't follow me are basically not good Muslims. So what Hisham tries to do is stress how complex it is to actually find out what the Prophet said. So th- one thing he does is he teaches a whole course on Hadith. The Hadith are the reports of what the Prophet Muhammad uh, uh, did or said or, or didn't do or didn't say sometimes when something happens. And there are lots of reports about what the Prophet Muhammad did or said and you, what uh, Islamic scholars do is they sift out the sound from the unsound by looking at the chains of transmission from somebody who actually heard the Prophet uh, uh, all the way down to somebody who wrote it down, one of the great compilers such as Bukhari. And the way these uh, Islamic scholars do this is they look at the 
moral quality of the transmitters. You know, some guy might have passed on a bunch of hadith, but he beat his kid. So we're not going to use his hadith. And, had, and another way of studying this is that are the chains. If you find uh, coming from different sources the same uh, text, Buhari sees, receives this text from all these different sources, the different chains, it's probably a pretty sound, uh, pretty sound hadith and, uh, and pretty reliable. So he, he emphasizes um, the science of things. Um, but be, beyond that, he's faced with questions, practical questions from Muslims on a daily basis about how to, uh, how to deal with various, uh, various issues. May I take a loan from City Hall? May I get an abortion? What about sex? What about marriage? Uh, tricky things to answer. Um, and what he does in answers to these questions is he, he thinks about the objectives of Islam, al-maqasid al-sharia, and uh, tries to think through what the correct answer is, is, is going to be in terms of the objectives of God's revelations and then how he can convince people to, uh, to uh, act accordingly. Let me give you an example. Many questions he gets turn on marriage and divorce. And these, usually, these bring into confrontation two normative systems, state law on the one hand and God's law on the other. In France, as many of you know, um, you have to marry at City Hall before you do anything else. In fact, two imams were thrown in jail. Well, not necessarily in jail yet. They've been convicted of, 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 a, uh, of, a, of a criminal act uh, over this past year, which is that they celebrated marriages of people who weren't yet married by the state. It's a criminal act in, in France. Obviously, the law was passed aimed at priests. It's an old law, but uh, some imams are, imams are now getting caught in it. Many, many Muslims don't think that marriage has anything to do intrinsically with the state. Um, and indeed, a, a nikah, or a, a religious marriage, does not have to involve the state uh, in any way. It has to involve the, the, the couple, a guardian, the gift, uh, the gift of something by the man to the woman, a mahar, and, uh, um, and th- their consent. Hisham explained to me once when we were talking why Muslims should consider the civil marriage at City Hall to be required on Islamic terms. Not, not just something you should do, but on Islamic terms to be required. Quote, some people think that having to go to City Hall and fill out forms is too much work. And moreover, they consider marriage to be a religious matter. They do so all the more because some Islamic authorities say that marriage is religious. They say that the Prophet in his time did not have laws about registering marriage. So it's not necessary for Muslims to do so. But then you can say, and this may make you laugh, he's talking to me, but there is something to it, that back then the society was composed of tribes. And if someone married, he never would just leave his spouse because his life would be in danger if he did so. Everyone knew each other then, so there was no need for these regulations. But now it is different. That's reasoning according to the purposes, maqasid, of Scripture. So uh, Scripture itself indicates marriage at City Hall because the purpose of marriage is, is the purpose of, of uh, Scripture's passages on marriage is to make marriage a stable contract. Hisham has seen what happens when couples don't enforce that contract at City Hall. The man often leaves, leaving the woman with no recourse, no ways to get state subsidies that she, to which she's entitled, uh, and, and unsure as to how you divorce if you were never married uh, uh, legally. So it has led him, as well as many others, to refuse all requests to perform Islamic weddings unless the couple has already married at City Hall. Sometimes they, they find somebody else to do it uh, anyway, and, and that's what's led to the arrest recently of these, of these two imams. Um, Hisham often uh, cites the 14th century scholar uh, Ashatibi, 
who writes about objectives, maqasid. Indeed, he's becoming more influential in many parts of the Muslim world, in Aceh, where I, I, I also work, in North America, <coughs> as well as in, in Europe. Um, many scholars in France and elsewhere who disagree on particular questions agree on the importance of, le- of looking at the objectives of, of Sharia. Um, for example, one issue that has been very much under discussion from 1999 on was a fatwa given out by the European Council on Fatwa and Research, headed by Kardawi, the group we just saw, saying that um, even though Islam prohibits interest, riba, under conditions of necessity, darurat, and this comes from Shatibi, uh, if a Muslim is faced with a situation where not owning a house would put him at a disadvantage, rents are high, they're in poor parts of town, Owning, however, would allow him to lead a more a better Islamic life, might be closer to a mosque. Then we should not do away with the uh, rule, the ruling about riba, about interest, but allow him to give him an, an exemption uh, from that rule for buying a first house. Now, if things change, or if he lives in Britain, where you there, it's easier to find uh, non-interest-bearing loans, then that exemption does not apply. But in, in cases where uh, it would make life, di- life difficult for him. It it does. And what's interesting, I've, I've read about this at length in the um, in the new book, is that there was a huge debate about this in France, people taking both sides, but the, the scholars I've spoken to who have taken one side or the other all couched their opinions in terms of the social consequences of following this fatwa or of not following this fatwa. Not saying, well, he read uh, the Hanafi school wrong or he... He didn't follow the correct method of jurisprudence, but saying, if we do that, here are the consequences. Good consequences being the ones that Kardawi talked about, I just mentioned. Bad consequences meaning it keeps us from being creative and finding other ways to finance. And it's saying that there are two measures. There are two rules for Muslims, depending on where they live. What we ought to do is try to find one rule, set of rules that applies to Muslims everywhere. This is one of the reasons I subtitled the book Pluralism and Pragmatism in a Secularist State, it's because of this uh, tendency to think in socially pragmatic terms, no matter how you come down on this, and to talk in terms of the objectives, maqasid, <coughs> of, of scripture. Um, we're going to go on now to the second example. So that was Hishem teaching in an Islamic institute, teaching about Islamic norms, reasoning. Students who uh, uh, attend that institute spend a few years there if they complete the study, by now, thousands have passed through it, so it's not inconsequential, and there are a number of them around France. Now let me turn to a debate, and uh, the key figure here again is Rabi Kashat. Uh, he has an interesting history. Uh, he, his mosque is and will be again in this part of Paris, 19th arrondissement. He's from Algeria. He, he came to France when he was young, and he was one of the first generation of of uh, immigrants to the Paris area to try to find ways to have jama'ah, to have congregational prayer. And it was a period of great creativity in a number of cases, indeed. Uh, Local priests would give Muslims either the use of a disaffected church. Is that what you say in English? One that's been de-consecrated or de-sacralized. Disaffected. Anyway, one that isn't used as a church anymore. Or allow them to pray, say, on uh, on the side to set up an area there for Fridays at noon when there wasn't much going on and have a prayer service. Uh, once the hierarchy got wind of this, they, they, they shut it down. But for a number of years, 
That's why the Belleville Church Mosque it was called what it was. He then was able to get a former factory, the place I indicated, and turn it into a huge complex where there's a mosque, or there was, now it's, it's uh, closed for the, uh, for the moment, um, on one side and a cultural center on the other, where uh, most years, for over about 12 or years or so, uh, every week, every Saturday, there'd be a day-long uh, panel debating a topic with uh, often, uh, almost always, one or two Muslim scholars well-known from elsewhere in the world, um, one or two local Muslims, one or two non-Muslims. Uh, I was on three times uh, myself. Um, and so it's an ecumenical kind of atmosphere and with topics ranging from um, spiritualism to what's, what the afterlife is to uh, one, there was one on Women's Day every year on Women's Day, uh, uh, AIDS, all kinds of, all kinds of interesting, interesting topics. Um, because he was so successful and from Algeria, he's always been watched by the secret police, and he was placed under house arrest at one time during a crackdown. Um, so he's an innovative guy with these ecumenical panels. He was the first to give uh, sermons in both Arabic and French. Now that's become a more generalized uh, pattern. And after, after uh, attending a number of these, I was asked to be on one in 2001. There's uh, Larbi, me, and this guy, Al-Buti, was the uh, was the main draw uh, for the day, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about um, this particular debate. There's oh usually between one and two hundred people who come. They're both um, Arabic and French speakers, and there's an attempt to uh, uh, translate, at least in summary form, from one language to the other. Always from Arabic to French less commonly, but sometimes from French to uh, Arabic. So these are interesting, uh, really global uh, settings for debate. So this one was about, was called Islamic Jurisprudence Between Rigor and Laxity. Uh, Muhammad Taufik al-Buti, who I pointed to, is the son and intellectual heir of the even more famous Sheikh Muhammad Said Ramadan al-Buti. They're both in the, or were at that time at least, in the Department of Islamic Jurisprudence at Syria, in the uh, University of Damascus. Um, and even though everybody gave their had their turn, I talked about Indonesia, and that was great, and everyone ignored me. Uh, clearly, he was the main focus of attention. And he, he criticized people who say that Islamic law, Sharia, must be modified to fit the social conditions in different countries. And he had, he had Yusuf Qardawi, remember Yusuf Qardawi's fatwa on interest um, in mind, when he attacked those who would, quote, dilute the rules of Sharia, and to free themselves from its restrictions in the name of integrating into Western societies. A notion of a fiqh of reality. That was something he was deeply opposed to. There was a lot of discussion about this on the panel, but let me just focus on the give and take from the floor. Because uh, the panel speaks, taking their turns, and then there's, there are hours of uh, either written questions handed up or even people coming up to take the mic and sometimes getting very excited, making life uh, very difficult for the translator. Um, and particularly because these are people from different parts of the Islamic world. Anybody who knows Arabic knows if you're, if you're from Egypt and you're hearing a Moroccan excited speaker, it's not that easy uh, to translate. Um, so, so I had to work with, a, um, with an Arabic teacher who, who had a pretty good range of dialects and could pick up on, off my tape <clears throat> some of these excited uh, uh, interventions. The first speaker was a, a, a Dr. Musa, a medical doctor, in fact, the dean of the Faculty of Islamic Studies at Oran, Algeria. 
who spoke in Arabic, these were uh, mostly in Arabic, these interventions, said that we must adapt Islam to a changing world and adopt, adopt a fiqh of reality. He cited, as many do, uh, the initial revelations of the, of the Quran, uh, recite in the name of the Lord, and a hadith of the Prophet to the effect that the entire Quran directs us towards ijtihad, individual interpretation of texts. Standard issue stuff. He mentioned the case of a young woman working as an engineer who was told she would have to remove her headscarf at work. This woman came to him, Dr. Musa, who's a medical doctor, and he could not resolve the problem. And he said, there's no solution to be found in scripture to these questions. Quote, these are questions from the real world for which we try ijtihad. It is better that I support a clever young Muslim woman at work than cause her to leave her field. With that, he started to step away from the microphone, but Al-Buti shot him a question. Did you give her a fatwa telling her to remove the hijab? Answer, no, we told her to wear it wherever she could. We have to find a solution. It is better. The next speaker took Al-Buti's argument further, and he blamed scholars such as Qardawi for weakening Islam. Quote, when Islam was attacked, mainly by the West, they did not succeed in destroying Islamic faith, but they worked hard on another issue, namely relating religion to life. Same argument. They started attacking the fixed Islamic rules, and their attack led to fiqh al-waqi, fiqh based on circumstances, or fiqh of reality. We hear these days that some scholars approve of making halal things such as going without the hijab, the last speaker, uh, borrowing at interest, eating meat that has not been properly killed. Okay, he went on uh, in, this, in this vein. Finally, a woman wearing a long gown with matching headscarf came forward to speak. She's a medical doctor and has always worked with the headscarf, quoting her now. It would have been easiest if I had taken off the headscarf for university. I had to stop my studies for a year and change towns before I found a situation where I could resume my studies covered. When looking for work, I received a call from a professor of law, and I said, well, but I wear the, the headscarf. And he said, that's all right, and I've, and I've lived what God said. She went on then to talk about how it's, it's not easy to follow that route, and without mentioning his name, she was criticizing Dr. Musa for having encouraged a woman to remove her scarf. Here's her quote. If I have questions about medicine, I see a doctor. But when it concerns religion, I look for someone who has the competence in that field. But people think they can all say something. <laughs> the, moderator, the moderator then chimed in to agree, uh, saying in Arabic that only those competent to issue a fatwa should do so. Uh, Dr. Musa had clearly touched a raw nerve here, and in his response, Al-Buti summarily dismissed everything that Musa had said. Quote, Dr. Musa spoke. I allow him to talk, this is the magisterial approach, I allow him to talk about profound medical issues, but when he talks about profound matters of the foundations, the usul al-fiqh, I do not permit him to talk, because this matter has been discussed thoroughly by scholars. Al-Buti clearly had been irritated that Musa would have dared to issue advice to the young woman faced with the question of covering her head at work. The next speaker, after this, because it went on, the next speaker irritated him still further. Hisham, a young student, not the Hisham al-Araf I talked about earlier, it's a young student, wanted to return to the role of the objectives of, of Sharia, the, the Maqasid, as justifications for changing Islamic norms. He reminded Al-Buti, he dared to remind Al-Buti, of, quote, the way that the Caliph Umar carried out ijtihad to abrogate the scriptural penalty, penalty for theft, even though there is an explicit text. Uh, Umar did, uh, made a lot of changes in uh, norms and their applications um, when he was Caliph, and he's always cited uh, by people who want to say we have to adapt norms to reality. 
Um, and in particular, the, 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 he, he said, we won't cut off the hands of thieves because they're stealing, because they're hungry. Um, back to the quote now. What, is that, what does that example say about the idea that ijtihad should be limited, which is what Al-Budi was saying, and that we should make circumstances accord with the rules of sharia and not the other way around? This was a direct challenge to Al-Budi, and he took it up. Quote, I will remind you of my answer concerning al-Makasib. In fact, the Makasib, the, the objectives of sharia, is a description of the nature of the Islamic Sharia and are not a source of rules. There is an illegitimate innovation, bid'ah, that's very bad, you shouldn't do bid'ah, that some follow called ijtihad al-maqasid. This this phrase here. Um, This would be interpretation based on objectives. Those people wish to make principles an alternative to the sources of law, and this must be absolutely rejected. Al-Buti drew the line sharply. Correct Islamic thinking was located in the traditions of jurisprudence, best carried out by scholars such as himself and his father, who were trained to do so in fiqh. Incorrect thinking includes deriving Islamic norms from general objectives or principles, or for that matter, invoking necessity, as did Yusuf Qardawi. In this criticism of the innovators, as he would call them, Al-Buti is joined by other Muslim scholars teaching at institutions of authority in the Middle East, and it places them squarely against the reasoning pursued by Hishem, or for that matter, by Larbi Kashat, his host, who frequently draws on the concept of Makassid in his advice to French Muslims. Kashat says that one of his goals in shaping these colloquia is to change the opinions of those who occupy authoritative positions in the Muslim world. I quote him, by bringing Al-Buti often, I hope that he changes his perspectives and also that French intellectuals change theirs. One of these contacts, one of result of these contacts is that he listens. But so far, he and others who attend the mosque gatherings have not budged. So here we've got uh, another slant on the way in which teachers feel themselves caught between the broader world of Islamic interpretation and the range of those and uh, the demands of French, uh, French life. And you really see that in some of these face-offs. All right, so we have a teacher, we have a mosque debate. And now I want to talk about the third example, that of private Islamic schools. There are um, what we could call the rules of the game for starting private schools. And they come out of a long history of, of uh, raw political conflict. This is not the uh, Cartesian reasoning. This is getting on the streets and fighting it out that go back to the efforts between 1903 and 1907 to get the church out of the business of teaching kids. <clears throat> Indeed, in 1903, uh, anybody associated with, uh, with a, a priest or a nun or anyone in orders uh, was basically forbidden from teaching entirely. That's where the French, French made their first move in 1903. Uh, in 1905, they tried to privatize the churches and say the faithful should just take up the churches and you know, pay for priests and and pay for the upkeep of churches if they so wish. It's not our problem. (laughs) The Vatican said, uh, no, thank you. And so the French said, okay, okay, we'll back off. In 1907, they said, okay, we'll pay for the maintenance of churches, anything that's already... uh, So that's why cathedrals are paid for by the state and uh, churches that were there in 1905 are paid for by municipalities. Um, Negotiations back and forth through the 20s and actually with a number of uh, modifications continuing into the 1950s, finally led to a modus vivendi, whereby uh, the state pays for the upkeep of churches. The state allows uh, there to be free schools, private schools, uh, but interestingly, these were called free, called free schools, so that was the argument made, uh, which meant Catholic schools. Furthermore, the state agreed to pay for the salaries 
of any private school where the national curriculum was taught, where pupils were admitted without regard to their religious confession, and where religious teaching was reduced to one period per week. Um, This is what all Catholic schools do. It's what some Jewish schools do. They're orthodox ones that just have their own curriculum and they fund themselves. Um, and it's the model now for any new uh, entry into the into the game. So these are the rules. Uh, Catholic schools are incredibly important in France, despite the fact that the Republican school was supposed to be the main way in which French people would be integrated into France uh, by everybody having the same curriculum, the same day, hearing the same things. Private schools... Uh, At one time or another, half of French families will use a private school, which means a Catholic school almost all the time, for one or other of their children. Uh, So it's a large uh, large, um, constituency. Okay, now the Muslims come along, and they want to play ball too. The first guy to try to do so is Dalmiskin. You saw him earlier in his robes heading out for a prayer in Clichy-sous-Bois. He's also head of the first school founded... um, uh, it re- received its its papers to allow it to open as an as an as an unsubsidized uh, uh, but nonetheless legal school uh, a week before 9/11, not the greatest timing in the world perhaps. And he's had he's had great difficulties over the years. His school is called uh, Success School, La La Réussite, and it, it is in Aubervilliers, just north of Paris, in uh, Seine Saint Denis. In this year, he was supposed to, he should have now um, been able to start receiving French state subsidy. But there have been a number of, uh, a number of roadblocks put in his way that I, I, detail, uh, I detail in the book. He fits the, he fits the requirements. He's had a good, uh, a, a good inspection report. He's an independent imam. He's not part of the state-run French Council on the Islamic Religion. Um, and in the meantime, two schools that were sponsored by component organizations of that council have received state permission and state subsidies. And here he is again, as you saw him before. Now, um, he does a lot of things. He, um, he takes his students out to uh, Normandy. Here he is at Dieppe uh, to see the sea, uh, to see uh, farms, because he also has... Oh, wait a minute. There, there. He also has property... Uh, near there where he's going to be expanding and building some new facilities. I was out there with him with my family. Family stayed in uh, this Muslim family camp overnight. They're my two children. And so their experience of Normandy is hanging out with this guy while he tramps through the fields and uh, gives uh, fatawa in Arabic on his cell phone to people somewhere else in the world. That's an interesting take on, on France. Um, there's great ambivalence about his project and indeed about the whole idea of Islamic schools. On the one hand, non-Muslim French people, uh, uh, public officials to whom I speak about this sort of thing, will say that, uh, okay, it's, it's not a bad thing because now the Muslims are doing what the Catholics and the Jews do. And after all, we set up this structure. Why not take advantage of it? And furthermore, it'll get them off our backs. They'll stop clamoring about the, the, the headscarf or any of these other rare halal food in schools. They'll just have their own schools. You know, let them go and have them. Um, on the other hand, well, this is Muslims separating off from other people, you know, so preventing them from integrating. A problem with this reasoning, this is just a parenthetical remark, and I, I go into this in detail in the book, is that the ways in which Catholics and Jews were able to successfully integrate was through their own associations was through religion-based associations, which had been very successful in France at a time when synagogue and church attendance has fallen drastically. 
Uh, so it's to misread French history about the relationship between religious, religion-based groups and integration into the republic. But people who make this criticism then always go on and cite a number of other instances where Muslims are seen as not integrating, uh, asking for a few hours a week for women only at swimming pools. Actually, Orthodox Jews were also a part of these demands. Um, asking for uh, women asking to be seen by female doctors at hospitals. Um, asking for halal food in, in schools. All of which are seen as going against the imperative of integrating everybody uh, engaging in what they call mixité, or mixing of especially of the genders. Um, so the fact that you might, in fact, it's, you have the right by French law to ask for a, uh, a doctor or a midwife, uh, or midwife would be a woman, right? A doctor or hospital personnel uh, of, of your own sex. But doing this, even though you're playing technically by the game, is, is a sign that you're not really integrating into French, uh, uh, French way of life with respect to gender. Now, I was very interested in how it would be that teachers would teach in this school, uh, this is a you know, regular curriculum, uh, subjects that might be considered to be sensitive from an Islamic point of view. So I've gone to classes, and I'll just mention two that I attended in 2006. One was the civics class for the, for the second. This is the last year of regular coursework. This was actually the original cohort of pupils in the school. Uh, the, the, um, the teacher gets a booklet from the Minister of Education and of suggested topics for class projects in civics classes. And for that year, uh, among the topics were unrest in the banlieue, the poor outer cities, discrimination, and uh, civil unions, or PACs. Uh, PACs are, uh, are partnership, partnership, solidarity uh, uh, contracts that any two people who are not closely related can enter into. Uh, it was originally thought of and proposed as a way for gay and lesbian couples to have to regularize their legal status, and indeed it has been used that way. But the vast majority, 92% at this point, of these POCs are by um, uh, heterosexual couples, uh, usually because, as in many cases in France, they do not like the idea of marriage, they don't like the gender implications of marriage, they don't want to go into the messy business of marriage and divorce. Um, in any way, it's, uh, it's been highly, highly popular in France. So, on one day in May 2006, two boys reported on civil unions. They circulated a photo from a newspaper story about two gay men, one from Madagascar and the other born in France. These two men had contracted the civil union and hoped that the foreign-born man would thereby qualify for a long-term visa. Never during the class, and believe me, I was looking for this, never during the class were there expressions of judgment or disapproval by students or, or the teacher about the couple's sexuality. There were spontaneous expressions from pupils, but on other, more practical issues. For example, when the teacher explained that in France, in order to inherit, you have to pay a fee to the state, one boy blurted out, oh, putain, <laughs> horror. The pupils mentioned current efforts to recognize gay marriages, but made no commentary. The teacher explained in a matter-of-fact way to the class that there was no promise of fidelity in a pax, and that, quote, in society today, people prefer to make a civil union first and then marry. It's true. In their questions, students were mainly interested in figuring out the legal logic of the relationship. When the teacher explained that you may not form such a union with more than one person and asked the presenters, the two students, why that might be, it took some coaxing for her to get them to answer correctly, which was that because polygamous marriage is prohibited, so are polygamous civil unions. The teacher then explained inheritance laws for marriage and civil unions and at this point introduced a contrast with, quote, Eastern societies 
where boys inherit larger shares than girls, and explained this contrast in terms of legal responsibility. Quote, if the, woman ha- if the women have debts, the men must help them from their own share of the inheritance. But if men have debts, the women do not have to help them out. In Western societies, however, boys and girls have the same shares, but they also share equally in the debts. A pupil asked if the eldest child did not receive a larger share in France. The teacher said that children could go to the notary and give more to the eldest if they wanted to. One pupil then asked, this is a young child who was born in France. He asked, even in our societies, chez nous? And she responded, yes, even in Eastern Arabic Muslim societies. By explaining the logic of the French system of marriage and inheritance, the teacher made it possible for students to understand the society within which they lived without embracing it as their own. The norm that, quote, people conduct civil unions first and marry later would seem foreign to Muslim Muslim children and to their parents, although the dual system presents an interesting parallel to the distinction of religious and state-sanctioned marriages made by many Muslims in Europe. Another topic. Most Muslims in Europe do not accept gay unions. The teacher encouraged a subjective distance from French social norms by affirming the one pupil's contrast between the society they were studying and where he was born and chez nous. All right. First example. Second example, this is my last one, about evolution. Uh, These are the same pupils, and the teacher is a woman uh, in her 40s who has indeed an advanced degree in biology. When I was there, they were looking at similarities across animal species and spoke about limbs and tails. Uh, The teacher explained that, quote, the tail disappeared on humans in the course of evolution. Then they they went to the uh, unity of living things, and she explained what that meant and then paused. This is the important part. Now let me open a small parenthesis. The curriculum is designed to convince you of the theory of evolution, but it is just a theory, not absolute truth. I cannot say that in 20 years a scientist will not say, no, that's no longer true. That's how science progresses. For example, with the cell, we used to say it was like a room. Then we became able to see the parts, and then there were biochemical studies. Science is knowledge that is constructed bit by bit. It does not fall from the sky. So now we teach about the unity of all living things, but perhaps in 20 years we will speak in a different way. And the class continued. I talked to her afterwards, and she said, um, I asked her if people ever objected about how she taught evolution. Here was her answer. I'm sure that some of them don't believe it. At the beginning of the year, I told the parents, now she's quoting herself, here's what I'm going to teach them because it's in the national program. And if you want to brainwash them afterwards or deform the teaching, it's up to you. <laughs> That's the end of the self-quote. But, but now this is still her. I do believe in all the stages that humans went through, Homo erectus and so forth, that we evolved, and also in the unity of creation, which was by God. But I do not think we have a common ancestor with other species. I just don't know what happened in between. She said she teaches the national curriculum, quote, as if there were always an inspector here in class. <laughs> as, as with the civics class, Pupils learn the official scientific position about evolution, and and she embraces much of that uh, curriculum, but she's careful to present the unity of all living things as a provisional claim. Uh, Pupils must learn it to succeed, and indeed for the school to be accredited, but it's not God's truth. And indeed, they did very well, by the way, on on their their baccalaureat on science. Both these teachers present their, and others too who I don't mention today, present their subjects in ways that emphasize an ethical distance between the believer's source of certainty, scripture, and the particular norms or teaching that characterize French society. For the teachers of biology and civics, this ethical stance means that the teacher presents the curriculum as an external set of claims to be learned for very specific purposes. 
The national curriculum says all living things are united. We have to learn that, but who knows it'll be the same in 20 years. The Pax is part of French society and reflects how that society has developed. We must obey all French laws, but we all know that's not the same as Arabic Muslim societies or Shainu. Their main concern is to impart knowledge that France requires about biology or civics, or for that matter, English or history, without giving up an independent religious stance. Right, concluding concluding remarks. Uh, Across Europe, I've just talked about France, but mutatis mutandis, we could talk about other places. A significant number of Muslims try to position themselves with respect to two sets of demands. First is the global field of deliberations about Islamic norms. And then secondly is a state-specific set of several things. The rules of the game or opportunity structures. The laws, how we do things here. Augmented by cultural expectations. How you should behave here. Habitus normal ways of acting in everyday life. And these are in turn embedded in histories of familiarity and struggle, of immigration, or of the absence of familiarity. And these are not specific to uh, territories of recent migration. Indonesian, Tunisian, and Indian Muslims are also engaged in similar positionings between various kinds of laws and judgments and various kinds of ways of acting. Nor is it specific to Islam because Catholics and Episcopalians are caught in corresponding trans-state and intrastate debates about sexual norms, especially Episcopalians right now. What Hisham or Larbi or Daumiskin are doing in France is not creating a sealed Muslim community, as so often is charged, but rather creating mechanisms of bridging moral and institutional worlds. If bridging is the answer to confrontation, then we ought to pay closer attention to the work that they do. Arguments, justifications, and debate ought to be a centerpiece of what we study in the sciences of confrontation and convergence. Thank you. And procedural question, do I not shut this off? You want me to keep it on? Okay. Yes. Well, this is an ethnographic study, and it's quite limited, and I, 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 I'm careful to explain this in the book. Um, in the book, I give a sort of an overall view of the different Muslim communities in France. We've got Turks, we've got Senegalese, we've got Algerians. There aren't many Shi'i, but there are some. There, there are a few, for, a few people from uh, Pakistan. Again, not many. There's one Urdu mosque that I know of. Um, and, 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 and talk about the differences. But then I, but then I say, I'm basically de- dealing with North Africans. And the reason is that they're the ones who have the major role in, uh, as public figures in France. So they're the ones taking the heat, as it were, in these uh, deliberations that are public about what Islam should look like. Uh, the, the Senegalese and Mali uh, Muslims uh, tend to be quite much more deeply involved with relations back to the head, heads of their own Sufi orders. That's a whole different dynamic others write about. But the, the, the normative debates and uh, deliberations aren't taking place, say, in Marseille, where there are a lot of them, but taking place in, uh, in Senegal or Mali.
Um, and, and so that's why, that's why Shia. Now, in terms of, uh, of, of Ibadah versus Mu'amalat, um, these debates that I encounter are entirely about Mu'amalat in the broadest sense. Often Mu'amalat is used to mean banking and things, but in the broader sense of relations among humans. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're entirely about that. There are some interesting discussions about Ibadah issues that I do go into the book. Um, for example, there is uh, um, there, there's, a, there, there's a tendency to focus in on the complexity of any one uh, uh, madhab's teachings about, for example, solat, the way to pray, as an indication of how complex Islamic knowledge is. And again, to say the simplistic answer is not enough. Islamic knowledge involves a great deal of detail. So there's one, I've been in classes where there's a long discussion about, say, uh, uh, the Hanafi position versus the Maliki position, about how much you're allowed to turn your body while uh, engaged in salat without, without violating salat. It's not so much that that's important, but that it's a way, if there's a meta-message conveying to students that there's a lot of knowledge here, and if you really want to know what you're doing and be able to eventually, maybe as a dad or a mom, talk to your kids, you ought to know some of this knowledge. So it's a kind of a bulwark, again, again uh, against the East. But these are not issues for public debate, no, they're, uh, about Ibadah issues. Uh, it's entirely Mu'amalat. Did that answer everything yeah. you want? No, how is it yeah. 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 Right. 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 And of course, again, there's no there's no large Shiite community, so it doesn't come up. Um, although this this notion of darurat or necessity that can can justify an exemption or a, a different sort of ruling uh, is something that different groups are introducing in different contexts. In Indonesia, you see it introduced in the Shafi'i context, for example. Yes. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Marseille, and I'll be I'll be there a lot more over the next couple of years because of some projects I'm involved with uh, the French government actually. Um, and Marseille is really unusual in that the center of the city is occupied by Muslims. It's really unusual, and of course it has to do with uh, the history of of boats. <laughs> um, it's just like you know in Paris, you go to the di- different railway stations and you find people living around those stations still who, who whose home ter- regions were served by those particular stations. Um, and it is very interesting. And I do, in the in the book, I take three mosques. There's a whole chapter looking at different ways in which mosques have, have developed uh, a broad range of social and political activities. One of them is the Mosque of Lyon. So I talk about Lyon in that, in that respect. Um, there are strategic reasons, which is that uh, if when I, for the months that I've, I was in Marseille, people were looking towards Paris to see what was happening in terms of these doctrinal issues. Um, the one exception here, so that's the strategic region in, the, in that the center of debates are there. There's nothing like Labi Kashat's mosque going on in Marseille or in Lyon. Now, that said, if I were interested in people from Mayotte, uh, Comoro, Senegal, Mali, uh, there would be good strategic reasons to focus on Marseille because they have much larger, proportionately, they're much more important there than anywhere else. 
and I would and I would be I would be learning lots of other things. There's a there's a woman uh, Sophie Bava who's done a lot of excellent work on these, and I draw on that in the book actually, just simply to show that look, it's not it's a variegated picture, and there's reasons I'm concentrating here. Or if I were interested in Turkish Islam, I'd be in Strasbourg, or I'd be in different parts of Paris because of the way in which Turks have settled, and indeed their settlement has been um, much more uh, enclave-like uh, than is the case for any other uh, group, including actually Mayotte and Camorra Muslims. Is that uh, uh, sufficient? Okay. So I yeah. Right. Hmm. Uh, the answer to the first question, uh, globally, yes. Um, and indeed, at this one really great way to sort of take the temperature of things is to go to these annual Salon du Bourget, these, these, <laughs> these huge meetings where thousands of people, and sort of see what the stands are, uh, what's at the stands, and see how people talk, see where they go, see how they're talking about things and conversations. And there's always been a huge presence of conflicts involving Muslims elsewhere, not Kashmir, because there's so few South Asians. Uh, but every place else, uh, the, the Chechen conflict, when that was hot, uh, always Palestine, uh, Palestine. Um, when there's particular repression going on, say, in Tunisia or Morocco, you'll see a stand about that with videotapes of, of somebody um, uh, speaking, you know, from jail maybe or something like that. So there's a tremendous awareness of that, of conscious of that, consciousness of that. Uh, there's a strong uh, effort by the um, mainstream leaders, imams at major mosques, et cetera, to stamp out kind of uh, wild jihad calls and things. Very different from Britain in terms of the institutional history of the mosques in France. Uh, so if you, if you see cases of various uh, jihadists who have come from France, uh, it's not a history that passes by way of mosque leaders. Sometimes there's a little bit of activity going on the side of a mosque that then gets stamped out, but that's a recruitment activity or something. Um, mosques are very heavily policed in France. There's a secret police person uh, coming, you know, coming to listen all the time, and there's a great deal of, and they don't find much. There's not a whole lot of uh, uh, militant jihadist uh, preaching going on in there. In contrast to say Britain at a certain time, that's changed in Britain. Um, at the same time, the cost is that. There's not the same kind of close working relationship between groups that we might think of as ideologically somewhat radical, that's a contestable uh, qualification, um, Salafi groups, and police in France. There's a lot of suspicion. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency to, in an ideological way, say, well, everybody who's, everyone who talks to everybody you had is, is beyond the pale. One time, if you were affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, now that would... Here we talk about Hamas, right? It's the same network, but there it was always the Brotherhood. Now people talk about Salafis uh, more. Anyone who, who, who has a link, the police don't want to talk to them. In Britain, the guy who was head of the Muslim unit in the, in the Metropolitan Police Force, they have a Muslim unit, um, worked hand-in-hand -hand with the Muslim Brotherhood representative to England, an Egyptian man, to clear out the, the Finsbury Park guys, who you've probably all heard of. They were the ones who were saying incredibly radical things, you know, kill the queen and stuff. Um, but he worked, he worked with that guy, and he works with Salafi mosques because they're the ones who are, have most to lose by a guilt by, uh, by association. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't bother with sort of 
nice mainstream, let's all get along with people because they don't, they don't know anything. You know, they're not clued in. But very different kind of security policies in this country. And the Germans are totally out to sea as far as I can tell. I was just at a security in the SLAM conference in London. It was really impressive what the, what the Brits were doing. You know, far and away the most realistic, it fits the stereotypes, right, but the most sort of pragmatic oriented people, you know, in this regard. Um, right. Well, this is what Rick's working on a lot. He's just left the room. Um, this, of course, is the question of Turkey, the European level. And uh, the debates about the, the Christian character, the Judeo-Christian heritage or, you know, that took place at the level of Europe uh, were seen as important with respect to Turkey more than with respect to Muslims in France. If you say to Muslims, look, Dalmiskin, he takes students to the great cathedrals of Normandy. And he says, look, you know, he goes to the, one of them, uh, Reims, I think, where he's there. Where's the Chagall window? Is that Reims? Somebody, okay. He says, look, you got a, a Jew made this window. The carpets were made by Muslims. We're in a Catholic cathedral. Isn't this great? <laughs> you know, it doesn't bother them. I mean, the one thing that the Muslims I work with are not bothered by are things like Sunday's a day of rest, you know, or there are Catholic symbols here. That's not an issue. The issue is can we practice our religion? Can we get our meat halal? Can we pray? That's what matters, the, you know, that the religion. So, yeah, they would say, yes, uh, Europe was formed around Catholicism, not Judaism. They won't go for this. It was formed around Catholicism, right. That's not a, it's not a major issue for them. Uh, I know your question wasn't about them. It was more about the other side, uh, I think, if I, if I took it correctly. Um, and, of course, this is one of these cases where poll-taking is extremely slippery because when French are asked or Spanish are asked, can Islam be compatible with the modern society? Who knows what they're thinking? There is a whole long tradition in France of Sufism. Converts, uh, friendly stuff, as we have in the U.S. You know, a lot of people don't think Sufism is part of Islam. These are ordinary folks who don't study things, right? Because they know it through, uh, you know, the 60s. Uh, you know, hanging out, doing cool stuff, dancing, right? Islam? Well, that couldn't be Islam. Uh, so that may be in people's minds, too. Rick will tell us eventually what, what's all, what all is behind that. Uh, so we don't really know what people you know, have in mind when they're, when they're, when they're talking uh, about that. And, and each country has a different set of associations. You know, in Spain, it's very much uh, the Andalusian, uh, post but post-Franco context. Um, in Germany, uh, you have religions are public corporations, and so it's a whole different legal political context. Uh, they're most concerned about getting Muslims to get their act together so they can tell the government, you know, one thing. Um, the Dutch are, uh, Dutch are really concerned about tolerance of homosexuals. That's, that's the big issue. But, you know, the issues are really different in different countries. And so I am not in favor of writing about Islam in Europe or talking about Euro-Islam because I think it, it removes almost all of our analytical tools. Yeah, yeah you two can work it out. Did, would one be, I don't know who's the student of whom here. I, you know, I don't want to get in the way of any kind of master-servant relationships. <laughs>
Right. And finally, um, it's, it's a, I mean, at least when I was there, it's just such a poor neighborhood with people with market people eating in cafes, having nothing to do, um, just smoking and drinking coffee. Unlike French people in the <laughs> Setiana. <laughs> Never seen a French person in a cafe smoking. <laughs> well, that's in August. <laughs> Good question. Of course, this is this is one part of a book, and the book that is part of a two-book kind of project. <laughs> so there's a lot more in the first one about, first of all, from the state side. I know your question isn't limited to that at all, uh, but again, the the I think fr- um, many public officials in France have done a tr- uh, remarkable job in working with uh, Muslim partners, uh, usually associations created according to the law of 1905. Increasingly, if you know, you, you know, you're French. Uh, <coughs> okay. Yeah, or the Law of 1905 associations are ones that are religious. Law of 1901 associations are cultural, and there's an attempt to push them more towards 1905 ones. But there's a tr- there are a lot of really, really good efforts over time to work with these associations to find out ways so they can have mosques. A lot of mayors have granted uh, public space for uh, prayer on the Eid, um, the, two, the two festivals. Um, uh, for decades, there have been efforts to try to figure out what to do t- uh, to get enough sheep sacrificed on one day for Muslims at, uh, on, the, on the Feast of Sacrifice. And this has involved ministers, uh, prefects, people in the veterinarian service. I, I was working with somebody in the veterinarian service on this issue at one point. It's fascinating. Follow. I, I have a little side interest in, in slaughter. Um, <laughs> better follow me out of here. Um, uh, just because you have the logistical and you have the Islamic normative and you have the political and you have Brigitte Bardot and you have everything, you know, everything is, comes together about, about sacrifice. So there's a lot of government goodwill in the French tradition that Rick co- very correctly said is the continuous thread uh, throughout French history is this Gallican tradition of the state has, a, has the duty to control uh, all that is temporal. In, in religious institutions, and part of that can be also supporting those institutions, uh, making it possible in, in an equitable way for that for Muslims to pray, just as Catholics and Jews and Protestants can uh, can, can worship. So so there's that. Then there are uh, non-state partners. Early on, there was a great deal of cooperation from Catholic uh, priests, as I said before. Um, there are a number of interfaith efforts as well. Uh, there was there, uh, Dalmiskin learned a lot from uh, Jewish and Catholic educators about how you set up a private school. Um, there is a, a general sense, uh, a delicate sense here of we're competitors, but we're all sitting in a country that is secularist, and so we maybe we should you know have some alliances. But on the other hand, if if the state comes at the Muslims and makes it clear it's not coming at the Jews and the Catholics, they back off. They actually don't. In the in the headscarf case, the other religions backed away. They did not come together and support. The, the, the mainstream Islamic uh, objection to the law. Um, and I, I think, you know, despite the centrality, the centralism of France, the Jacobin tradition, so much happens on the neighborhood level. So much of the action is in local associations. It's a country of associations. And that's where religious life is. You know, nobody goes to church or synagogue, but they're, they're in those Catholic and Jewish associations. I don't mean nobody. They're in those schools. They're in those schools as well. Um, and the same for Muslim groups, 
right? I, cultural associations, religious associations. So there's where you see real efforts to to work together. I could go on, but I, that's is that good? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Now to you. Now to you. Right. 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 Um, it doesn't come up in that school. It comes up a lot in regular public schools where there are objections. I don't know a lot. See, here's something we don't know. I have a student who's going to go and study this now. Um, we hear a lot because of the way that state commissions have been um, fixed, commissions of inquiry. We hear a lot about male Muslim students objecting to teaching about the Shoah, the Holocaust, uh, or objecting to statements made about Islam or about history in history classes. We hear a lot. Sir? Battle of Poitiers. We hear a lot about that through the media, or and there's and there's a whole genre of. I did battle in the schools as a teacher. Now I'm sure glad I'm left. There's just tons of these books in France. Um, you probably some of you probably saw uh, Entre les Murs, uh, the class, which is a much debated, much disliked by many teachers movie and from a book about one fairly. Uh, well, go on about that particular guy, François Bégado, but one class. Uh, we hear a lot about this stuff, but we don't really know how common it is. You know, if you took, if you took uh, 20 history classes across France and, and you had 20 people sitting them for the year, places where there was a n- number of Muslim students, how many times would you hear an objection? Maybe we have no idea. We have no idea. It's one of those things. French media is terrible for, you know, for looking, selecting on the dependent variable, as you would say. What? <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, sure, sure. Uh, but on this issue, they're terrible. We have, we really don't know. Uh, but there is a the lab I, I work with in Paris. It's called the, the GSRL for anyone who knows the, uh, the group uh, Religion Société Laïcité. Uh, is has a big project studying the teaching of religion in schools. So I think we'll know more in a somewhat more objective way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. A modern society, modern society. Well, we also have that, yeah. yeah. We also have that. We also have that. And Muslims, uh, the question that I remember about put to Muslims was, uh, which it's a funny question, but you know, it's pew. They'll have something to say about that. Um, which do you put first, your 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 religious identity or your national identity? Muslims answered in a, a, roughly the same percentages as do American Christians. It's in the 40s both ways. Uh, they were much more likely to say French identity first than were Muslims in Britain or Spain or the Netherlands. That's interesting. Are you standing up because I'm supposed to yes, stop? I need to pull this book on. I'm so brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Once upon a time, maybe. Nice to meet you.